Hello, I'm Matt, and this is Ghostthropology. This show will feature ghost folklore, which includes both well-known stories and small personal encounters, all ultimately unverifiable, but all presented by people as true. I will tell you the story, after which I will discuss the elements of the story that I think are particularly interesting. While I don't know when, where, or how you were listening to this, I hope it's dark outside, as that is the best time for ghost stories. Episode 37, A Conversation with Dr. Elena Pirock. In this episode, Dr. Elena Pirock and I discuss the use of ghost stories in creating particular visions of the past, and how these stories can be both a help and a hindrance to understanding history. Dr. Pirock has spent a good deal of time studying and writing about Colonial Williamsburg, Virginia. In order to help orient you as a listener, I thought I should begin with a brief description of Colonial Williamsburg. Colonial Williamsburg is a living history museum and a historic district within the city of Williamsburg, Virginia. Although British colonists have lived in the area since the early 17th century, displacing the native Powhatan people, The town as it has currently been restored reflects the architecture and features of the latter half of the 18th century, the period before, during, and immediately following the Revolutionary War. Much of the restoration work occurred in the first half of the 20th century, spearheaded by Reverend Dr. W.A.R. Godwin, rector of Williamsburg's Bruton Parish Church. Godwin felt that the history of Williamsburg, as a place of importance to the history of the early United States generally, and to Virginia more specifically, would be well served by restoring buildings and public spaces to what they had been during the late 18th century. With the financial backing of the Rockefeller family, Godwin led an effort to raise funds and restore the built environment of the historic district. Over the next several decades, additional features and elements were added, and Colonial Williamsburg today is a substantial living history museum in which costumed interpreters, dressed in the clothes of the late 18th century and behaving in character when talking to visitors, work to help patrons of the museum better understand life in colonial America. The museum is also a place of research, with archaeologists, historians, architectural historians, and others performing ongoing studies into the location. And, as you have no doubt guessed, the place is host to many ghost stories. Reverend Godwin spoke openly of his belief that the spirits of past historical figures were still present. While he often wrote and talked about this in a manner that could be taken as figurative, at other times he was quite clear that this wasn't just poetry. These ghosts were quite benign and served to link modern Williamsburg to historic Williamsburg. More recently, Ghost tourism has resulted in more sensational stories about the ghosts in the area, yet the stories linking the past and the present through non-violent hauntings is still quite alive, with even Dennis Houck's often sensationalistic directory of haunted places describing primarily harmless ghosts who are the spirits of the city's past. And with that, on to my discussion with Dr. Pirock. Thanks for coming on. I guess the best way to start would be to have you introduce yourself. Hello, my name's Alina Pirock. I'm an uh, assistant professor at Georgia Southern University, and my research looks at sort of how 
uh, Americans have used ghosts to understand historical place. Excellent. And if I recall correctly from what I read, you're a professor of public history. Is that correct? Yeah. So I do, I do both 20th century U.S. and public history. Okay. Uh, but yes, yeah, I do. Um, I teach public history for undergrads and then every now and then an upper level graduate class. Excellent. And how did you get interested in the use of ghosts as a way of understanding history? I feel like there's multiple different paths that led me to it. But I think one of the smoothest paths, I guess, uh, is that my family is really into ghosts. My mother, my sister, my grandma, that was always kind of a thing that they would talk about, about who was in the house or what various ghosty thing was happening. My sister loved all the ghost book stuff. I hated it. I can't stress that enough, how I did not enjoy any of this. None of their, I, I was always very creeped out when like something would rattle and my mom would be like, oh, that's so-and-so. And I'd be like, I don't want anything to do with this. I don't like this. Uh, and I, I think perhaps that made me want to look more into ghost stories as a sort of cultural creation rather than like a true belief because the true belief always made me so uncomfortable. Uh, so I think that that sort of inspired me to be like, okay, I'm going to look at what the stories are doing for human beings rather than letting my family creep me out real bad. Understandable. And from what I've read, it seems like most of your uh, focus is on Colonial Williamsburg. Is that correct? Or did I just happen to read Colonial Williamsburg? Material? No, that's, yeah. So my, my dissertation looks at ghost stories in Virginia more broadly. And then as I was transitioning that work into a publishable book, one of my uh, mentors for my dissertation, Julie King said, you know, why don't you just focus on Colonial Williamsburg and you could really sort of make a much sort of richer story out of that. Uh, and she was right because Julie King's always right. So I, I did that and I sort of just dug into Colonial Williamsburg and luckily I found so much. I was nervous when I was writing the dissertation that, you know, oh, I, I can only find a little here, a little there. Uh, but when I began to seriously dig into Colonial Williamsburg, it just kept unfolding in these really surprising ways, like finding out that W.A.R. Godwin, the guy whose idea Colonial Williamsburg was, finding out that he spoke about the possibilities of this restored city in terms of ghosts. I, was, I, I remember I was in the Godwin building in Colonial Williamsburg, and I saw this like letter he wrote and I just like put it down and I was like trying to look up at the archivist like <laughs> I just found it the thing so that's that's kind of how it became very Williamsburg focused uh and I, I think that it works and is perhaps more useful when looking at Colonial Williamsburg because it's such a sort of massive institution and a massively influential institution that sort of looking at ghosts and how this institution has used them can sort of work as a case study for other folks who are looking at perhaps smaller institutions or others, and they can sort of see these threads going through. Now, for uh, any listeners who are unfamiliar, Colonial Williamsburg is a reconstructed... Uh-uh. Ah, okay. Colonial Williamsburg is restored. Restored. And partially okay. reconstructed. Gotcha. So, uh, many, many of the buildings there, and this is what makes Colonial Williamsburg unique, is that many of the buildings there are original to the 18th century. That's why the city was attractive to restore, is that the buildings were already there. Now, if you think of a place like 
what was once called Plymouth Plantation. I know that they have a different name, but it's not coming into my head right now. Everything at Plymouth Plantation, which is sort of a recreation of the English Plymouth Village, all of that's recreated. If you go up to Michigan, it's owned by the Henry Ford Museum. And Henry Ford created this little historical looking village by taking buildings from other parts of the country and bringing them in one spot. So there's lots of different ways to make a historical village. And Colonial Williamsburg, their claim to fame was, it's already here. We didn't have to create it. We just, you know, spruced it up a bit over a few decades. And Colonial Williamsburg, from what I can gather, is now known largely as a living history place. But according to your writing, that is a relatively recent phenomenon. Recent as in from the 1970s onwards, from what I could gather. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. When Colonial Williamsburg first became sort of open to the public, it was more about, I don't know, I've been trying to find words how, how to describe this, but it's this like 20th century pride in technology. So though it is this restoration of an 18th century city, it is this celebration of technology because you have these professional museum workers, archaeologists, historians, historical craftspeople who are using sort of this modern 20th century science, this like kind of hubris to bring the past back. So it is sort of this very kind of scientific expression that they're saying, we in the 20th century have gotten so good at research. We've gotten so good at fabrication. We've gotten so good at archeology span that we can bring the past back. So that was the original sort of delivery for Colonial Williamsburg was look at what us 20th century people have done. We've brought the past back. And now you can just imagine what it was like. Colonial Williamsburg, like a lot of other historical institutions, does not get an interpretive document that says, this is what we think we are, this is how we're going to do it, until way later in the 20th century. So for those first few decades, the idea was just come to Colonial Williamsburg, see what we've done, and there you go. So they they struggled a lot in the beginning to, to get a really large, dedicated audience because the thing that they did was just so deeply nerdy and so deeply cool to a small amount of people that they weren't thinking like, oh, we should have somebody who like brings life into this. They're like, we, we got some ladies in dresses and we got some guys on horses. That'll be enough. And none of those people were saying I'm an 18th century person. They were just like Ted and Mary. You admit a comment that while... Everybody acknowledges ghost stories as being irrational. I'm, and I'm going to use the term slightly differently here. I'm going to say historic reconstruction, but not as in physical reconstruction, but as in a representation of the past is also irrational. But because it was um, pitched and thought of by the people who did it as this achievement of 20th century history and archaeology, that kind of hid the irrationality both from the public and from the people doing it. And you make this interesting point that the ghost stories allow you to kind of investigate the irrationality of both elements and to try to find something meaningful in those. How did you go about trying to interrogate this idea? So my interest was like the door that I opened up first was ghost stories, right? Mm -hmm. So as I'm walking through that door and I'm looking at Colonial Williamsburg and it's kind of the idea behind it, this, this insistence that it is the 18th century, which is seen in all kinds of um, commercial materials. It's like, welcome back, come to the 18th century, which is not rational. You can't do that. It's gone, right? It is, it happened. We don't have the power to, to, to time travel. It isn't the 18th century. It's, it's a 20th century recreation of the 18th century that you can visit in the 21st century. So it's, it's 
you know, it's, it's its whole thing, but it's not the 18th century. And so I, I was sort of picking at that idea of what they're saying is impossible. They're insisting upon it, but they also know that it's not possible. That I found very interesting and that there is this sort of acceptance of the impossible without mentioning that it is impossible, but this acceptance, this sort of rhetorical use of this irrational thing, right? This, this thing um, that is not sort of wedded to rationality. And when I say irrationality or, or rationality, it's, it's much more tied with sort of enlightenment ideas. Mm-hmm. One of the things that you may notice when the book comes out uh, is that in the book, I don't use the word irrationality, largely because it's kind of like a sophomoric academic thing I was trying out at the time. Because when we use the word irrationality casually, so when most people use it, what they're talking about is someone who's just bananas out of their mind, right? But when you take that word and you're like, I'm going to use it in the enlightenment way, confusion sort of develops around that. So I, I had, I like grabbed hold of this word irrationality and kind of tried to dig into this idea of how non-rational, non-logical things become a part of our lives that we consider to be, you know, perfectly rational trustworthy, right? Museums, libraries, other such institutions are some of the most trustworthy institutions in the United States or or institutions that are given people's trust, people trust them. So what does that mean that if this trustworthy institution is doing something that's impossible, or it's claiming to do something that's completely impossible? And I was kind of wrestling with that. And once I sort of moved past the dissertation and got into the book, uh, one of the things that I found much more useful Because of course that word irrationality or irrational, I can use it in the enlightenment way and be like, ha ha ha, I know how to use this word. And it's not what you would say in a casual conversation, right? Throw that out because that's a breakdown of communication. I sort of dug into it and I was like, okay, what is it here? What, What actually am I meaning, right? This being sort of outside of rational thinking, being outside of logic. And really what it is and what I found to be a much more useful way to describe what's kind of going on here is emotion. It's human emotion. And human emotion is not necessarily tied to like logic and reason. It's not in a lab. There's no buns and burners. There's no beakers. It's just human, right? It's this deeply, deeply human thing. So I've kind of transitioned away from irrational because when people hear irrational, they think like, oh, you're calling them crazy. Oh, you're poo-pooing on on true believers. I'm not trying to do. Uh, so I found emotion of sort of seeing this very deeply human emotion in these ghost stories and in this desire to create the past again, worked a little bit better to sort of really get at what this project is. What are they doing? What are they doing with the recreation and restoration effort? What are they doing with the ghost stories? And all of those kind of come back to this idea of trying to create something that's deeply human, right? So it is kind of a Frankenstein-y that way, I guess. Well, it, it really puts me in mind of something that uh, the anthropologist Michelle Hanks found when she was working with groups that basically ghost tourism groups in the UK. You had sort of this division between the official groups, you know, the government run museums, things like that, who'd use ghost stories as a way to lure people in while never really reflecting on the fact that they were using something that completely upends our entire understanding of reality to bring people in to see mundane artifacts. Yeah. But then you would also have people creating, you know, essentially narratives that had political implications about the past through ghost stories. And it seemed like in the case of Godwin, he was trying to do that from uh, 
what I understand is, would you say that's a fair assessment or am I missing the point there? The first part or the second part? I should say maybe not, not that Godwin was intentionally trying to do that, but that his understanding of ghost stories seemed to fit within this mold of reflecting a version of the past that has social and political implications that he may or may not have been aware of. Perhaps. The way that I've kind of understood Godwin is that he he's very old school. Like he, he's old school for the 1920s. He is like, he's dressing in fashions that are sort of older. He's, he's wearing that like detachable collar on his shirt way past when it was fashionable. And he's also religious. So, so he is, he is reverend, right? He is Episcopalian and he is a church leader. So I, I see sort of his embrace of ghost stories sort of within that sort of spiritual model, but also as a way to communicate with his flock and and communicate with the people within the community. In his early days working in Williamsburg, uh, this is the early 1900s, he came into Williamsburg at this time when the parish itself, where he was working at uh, Burton Parish Church, is kind of divided. The church is kind of crumbling down. Their previous leader, uh, there's all kinds of political turmoil, like little church political turmoil. They, They said he was a drinker and he wasn't fixing up the church. So they had sort of two factions within this uh, church that are divided. So the guy who drinks it gets, gets kicked out, young Godwin is put in. And one of the ways that he brings his flock back together again is that they come to his house to try to, you know, talk smack about the other group. And he would ask them questions about the Civil War. The Civil War tore the crap out of Williamsburg. It was right in this pocket. And so it saw really significant battle damage. And many of the people who were older had experienced that. So they would come in and be like, you want to know what this neighbor person and he'd be like, don't tell me about that. Tell me about the city's history. Tell me about the Civil War. And through those conversations, people in the neighborhood, parishioners would say like, oh, dot, dot. And also, you know, my house, it's actually uh, it's haunted. There's a Revolutionary War soldier upstairs. I don't know if you knew this. And sort of sort of this like bragging about what they have and how they're related to history was this really significant way for the parish to sort of come back together after this feuding time. And I think that when he begins to use ghost stories as a way to promote the restoration of the entire city, not just his little church, but but the entire city, he's sort of using these stories that were given to him by locals that illustrated how they understood the significance of their homes, the house homes, and like home more broadly, the city. So I'm not 100% sure if he was sort of plugged into a lot of larger political conversations, Mm -hmm. but in the sort of small local community parish politics, his stories were absolutely political uh, because they, they, they were sort of this language that was used for the community members to sort of lock themselves within the community and within sort of this, this historical narrative say I'm, I'm special because I'm connected to this in this way. I'm an archaeologist, and we look a lot at why are burial customs the way they are. And very often, one of the things you see in a lot of societies is burial either within or near the home. And that's usually taken as an idea of ancestor worship as a way of connecting yourself to the past. And when I was reading this, I got the impression, and I don't know if I'm completely off base here, but it seemed as if these ghost stories could serve as a sort of proxy ancestor worship or connection. Yes. Yeah. That's, so there is, and I, I tried to find it and I couldn't find it, um, but there is this poem that was published in, I think like the Richmond Times Dispatch. So newspaper out of Richmond. And it's talking about complaining about the nouveau riche who have moved into Virginia at the turn of the 20th century. So after the civil war and 
these newly wealthy folks are coming down to Virginia and they're buying up old homes. So some old plantation homes, old townhomes, stuff like that. And the poem goes on and on. And it talks about how these new people are buying up old portraits and saying like, oh, I, I have an old portrait. It's, and then, you know, they might be lying like, that's my family member and it's not. Uh, but as the poem goes on, they're like, they're buying up old antiques and the, the older Virginians are kind of perturbed because they're like, well, we, we didn't buy our antiques, we inherited them, right? So they're buying up antiques and they're buying ghosts in bottles. And the poem is kind of satirical and, mm-hmm. you know, crotchety. But, but this idea that these new money people are coming into the South trying to relate themselves to the past, and they're even trying to buy ghosts, right? They're, they're even trying to sort of authenticate their existence or give themselves depth, give their wealth a depth by not only buying up antiques, but like now they're buying up the ghosts, right? So it's, I think it's absolutely that. I think that a, a lot of the people who are living in these older homes, especially turn of the 20th century, it becomes very popular and reasonably popular for sort of independently wealthy writers, many women who are interested in uh, historical architecture, uh, interior decor. This is uh, one of the eras of colonial revival. So people are really interested in decorating their homes in sort of this colonial way, but it's like Victorian colonial. It's colonial, but with a lot more stuff. <laughs> you, you have these groups of people going around Virginia and other states up and down the East Coast trying to find really old houses that are still lived in. And they'll take pictures of the houses and they will uh, go interview the people who live there and they will talk about their house. And they'll talk about crown molding and they'll talk about the how old the wooden floors are and then this staircase. And in many cases, and increasingly so throughout the early 1900s, uh, the owners, when asked about their history, and they say, okay, well, what's what's the history of your home? And they'll run over a list of all the people who owned the house and, you know, Colonel this and that gave it to these and those. And then they will say, and there's a ghost. And it's that ghost part that really authenticates the history of the house, right? That's what makes it, oh, yes, it is. It's, it's not only that it's been owned since the 1700s, this house retains it, right? It's not simply that this house has existed. It's that this house, it, it is a ghost bottle, right? It is... It is a place where the past lingers. It wasn't just used in the past, right? It's, it's not just like a used car or a rescue pet. It retains the past. It then becomes this site where the past is alive, which of course is contemporarily Colonial Williamsburg's like go-to commercial phrase is like, the history is alive here. The past is alive here. And that has a lot to do with sort of the, the way uh, people have used ghost stories as this sort of way to authenticate their role in the past and to argue that, you know, this past that we all worship and we have nostalgia for, in my house, it's real. And I know that because the ghost who was here then is still there because it's so great here, right? <laughs> it's, it's very much this, this idea that heaven is home. So if you, if you look at early, 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 early modern Euro- European ghosts, a lot of them haunt because they were improperly buried. They haunt because they were murdered and their murderers still on the run and they're in a jar somewhere, not in the ground properly. So they will show up and rattle some chains, right? Because they aren't where they need to be. They need to go to the next level, right? These ghost stories turn of the 20th century, 20th century, they're fine. They don't need help because they're already in the most perfect place on earth, which happens to be these people's homes. It both ties the contemporary owner to the past by saying, I had this relationship with a ghost, no matter how cold, right? But they're also saying that I, I have maintained a house so perfectly to the past, so perfectly to the liking of past people that they're still here and super happy. 
So while I was reading your paper and also the uh, articles you'd written, I also am reading a book by a cuneiform expert named Irving Finkel, who's written about ghost beliefs in ancient Mesopotamia. And there's some weird parallels <laughs> because he also writes about this need to do certain things for maintenance of the dead. But the idea there is if you do those things, the dead will stay away and leave you alone. Yeah. Whereas what you were writing about and what you've just spoken about now, it's if you do it properly, the dead will come by and pay you a visit. So yes. yeah, it was more of a big thing than I thought it would be. Uh, so when I'm like digging into colonial Williamsburg. I'm also digging into other historical sites throughout Virginia because Virginia sort of, especially in the 20th century, becomes this like, we got the history, come in for it, right? Uh, so I look at Mount Vernon, same thing, but much, much earlier, of course. So the Mount Vernon Ladies Association gets cooking like before the Civil War, well, mainly after it. Uh, but so you had this group of financially well-off women who are dedicated to restoring George Washington's uh, Potomac Plantation. And one of the things that they talk about is how restoring this house will restore his spirit. And there's lots of different interpretations of how we can take the spirit of George Washington, right? So we go into the 1890s, looking through some of the papers of the Mount Vernon Ladies Association, and they're talking about, oh my God, we did so well with this room. You're giving each other ye old timey high fives. We did so well restoring this room. I'm sure George Washington and his friends are going to come back. And they're all dead. They're all very, very dead. And so they're, they're talking about how successful their restoration efforts have been and that now his ghost will probably come back. So they, they, they too, even before Colonial Williamsburg, before Godwin is, is talking about this, are explaining the success of their restoration in terms of sort of ghost lure. So they definitely want them back. There's no sense of, we did like in the Mesopotamian case, I fixed everything, you can now go relax. Because this idea is the house is perfect. Home, it's this deep, deep, deep love of home and home being heaven, right? So yes, you want to be here. This is your home. This this is where you lived your life because you, of course, were a perfect human being, right? They're still really deeply in love with, with people some, from the past. Some deification of uh, yes. past people, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so home becomes both sort of this domestic place, right? Very relatable. People have home, you have home. Oh, look, George Washington had doorknobs, as did I. So th there's that connection. But you also see sort of the deification of these people and also sort of the a not word came to my head, so I'm just going to say it, the templification of these homes, right? Mm -hmm. So these homes then become these places where the god lives the ghost of is there because you have created the situation so perfect for it one of the things that you mention in the uh, paper in the public historian is that there's a particular view of the past that is presented by a lot of the work at colonial williamsburg and you point out it's a very white and elite view do you think that was intentional on the part of the people who were who initiated the Williamsburg project or do you think it was more of an emergent thing where this is simply the way they thought and so that's what was reflected in their work or is that a false dichotomy maybe a little false dichotomy and a little bit of both right so contemporarily Colonial Williamsburg is not so white and elite right they've they've done a lot of work especially beginning uh in the 1990s to have a more like rounded both class and race presentation of the past. Uh, and yeah, it was all about wealthy white folks. The sort of first explanation of that would be like, oh, well, they're the ones who who wrote papers or they're, they're the people who have journals that we can look at. They're the ones with more easily accessible material culture. So there's lots of excuses, but also this is, you know, this is Jim Crow, Virginia. So of course they're, they're not gonna try they're not going to try to look up any stories about the enslaved folks of Williamsburg. They're just, no, 
they're not going to do that. That's that's not something that these people are interested in. It's not something that they want to put time and effort into. This is also happening in the 1920s and 1930s, where the understanding of, of history and who makes history and who lives history is very much, you know, the political leaders, right? So they're thinking that way too. So it's 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 definitely their understanding of history is very white and elite. And also they are Jim Crow Americans. So they are they're not gonna try. Right. They're they're not even going to try to look into anything to do with an African-American person enslaved or not. That's just not something that they are considering to be history. It's not something that they are considering to be interested in. even. And they they, they do have African-American employees. So it's not like they didn't know that they're like black folks folks existed or that they existed in colonial Williamsburg, Little C colonial, because they did. Since the, I want to say early 40s, the institution hired African-American men to drive the carriages. And the carriages were very popular uh, ways to get around town and they were sort of uh, 18th century looking. So one of the sort of first human interactions that people who came to colonial Williamsburg in the early days had were with African-Americans who were giving them tours of this city and saying like, oh, that's where George White lived. That's where the, the capital's gonna be once we finish rebuilding it, right? So African-Americans definitely existed in Colonial Williamsburg in the early restoration years, but the people who were in charge of interpretation officially, because the um, the guys who were driving the carriages were not understood officially as interpreters. So they weren't given resources. They weren't given time to read and do research like the white female hostesses were. They were given time to research. They were seen as interpretation, interpretive staff and were paid thusly, right? I haven't found any paper that says that an interpretive person, any of the the people who are in charge of interpretation said like, we're not going to talk about Black people. Mm -hmm. But there is this ignorance of it, sort of this willful ignorance. And I think that that has a lot to do with the fact that it's Jim Crow, Virginia. Right. Of course. Of course they didn't talk about African-Americans. That was a huge part of the way that their power and economic stability existed was by sort of pushing down African-Americans and like ignoring their contributions to to the nation. So even if they didn't, you know, sit at their desks and be like, how can we ignore African-Americans today? They were doing it for sure. Well, it makes me think of, uh, for lack of a better way of putting it, you have what I'd call a moral panic regarding, you know, critical race theory right yeah. now. And a large part of it seems to be, don't make me think about these things I don't want to think about. Yeah. But of course, in the 1920s and 30s, nobody's making you do that. Right. Yeah. No one's saying like, maybe you should do this now. Um, there's a sort of interesting cultural history story or culture wars even and ghosts. So in the 1990s, Colonial Williamsburg began trying really hard to bring a sort of broader vision of colonial Williamsburg, right? First thing that they did, and this, this happened in 79, but really like got teeth in the 90s. So in 1979, they create the first person interpretation program and they, they segregated. So there is the interpretation corps uh, and there's the African-American interpretation program. The idea when they created it was that if they create this separate department for African-Americans, they can commiserate, that they can sort of work together on the challenges of performing enslaved folks. Um, so good intentions with segregation, so it's, there's still some sketchy stuff there. This sort of keeps going on from the 70s throughout the 80s. And a lot of what these African-American interpreters are doing are they're doing music ways, they're talking about culture, they're talking about sort of the lives of the enslaved in a very sort of surface level way. But they're not really getting at that the grittiness and the reality of enslavement. That begins to shift in the 1990s. Uh, in the most famous case, uh, of course, is this 1994 recreated slave auction 
And so the, the African-American interpretation program creates this one-time performance of a slave auction where they are auctioning off the performers and the performers are the one doing it. So it's, it's portraying this 18th century scene. Word gets out about it and people freak out. The NAACP gets emails and letter, not emails, it's the 90s. They get phone calls and letters from people who are like, you cannot let this happen. A lot of folks are saying it's, it's taking them back to a place that they don't want to be. It's disrespectful. You can't talk about the uh, one of the most painful experiences of enslavement in a 30-minute show. They're very mad. So the, the day of the performance comes and... There's huge protests. They're bringing out like old civil rights era guys, like old grandpas are coming out and they're protesting and the performance happens. And most of the people say like it was actually very well done because the performers are professionals. They they know what they're doing. But what sort of happens within that, right, is that Colonial Williamsburg is taking this dedicated step towards showing the much more complicated, much more gritty, much more sort of emotionally difficult part of the colonial American life, right? So what was the colonial era actually like? It's like, ooh, it's pretty, it sucks, right? Not a lot of happy feelings there. So at the same time that Colonial Williamsburg is doing this in the 90s, during the daytime, doing these challenging narratives, right? This is uh, around the same time uh, sort of happening within this, when we get more conversations about Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings. So now you have people coming up to Thomas Jefferson interpreter, and they're like, let's talk about this, right? So you're you're getting these much more, um, what was understood to be difficult conversations happening in the 1990s, daytime Colonial Williamsburg. Nighttime Colonial Williamsburg sees the advent of these private ghost tours. And the private ghost tours are sharing these very old ghost stories that sort of repeat this like consensus historical narrative. Uh, it's very white, it's very elite. So you begin to see these sort of two different options emerging. You have Colonial Williamsburg in the daytime that's trying really hard to stay with it, right? They're, they're, they're trying to be with the conversation that's happening about the past now. They're trying to deliver to people this much more um, nuanced and realistic view of Colonial America. And then at night, massively popular ghost tours that are delivering a historical narrative that does not recognize African-Americans does not recognize Native Americans in a significant way, but is delivering more of these elite colonials and their wacky lives ghost stories. So while the ghost stories weren't really themselves created to be as political as they were in the 90s, they, they become sort of this sort of safe haven for a more conservative interpretation of the past because these ghost stories are old. They are from the 40s and they're from the 30s. They're from the 1900s. And they're delivering this version of, of U.S. history that is ignoring all of the sort of more difficult and gritty things that guests are experiencing during the daytime. You know, it's an interesting contrast because I know uh, when Tia Miles did research on ghost tourism in plantation sites in Mississippi, she found that the only place where there was actually discussion of slavery frequently was in the ghost tours. Although there, it really marginalized it by kind of putting it into the thing you don't take seriously. Whereas here you have the ghost tours really reflecting this more conservative view, but, and slavery actually trying to be discussed seriously, but, you know, having some difficulties. So that's kind of a fascinating contrast. 
I think that that has a lot to do with the time period from which the ghost stories come from. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the ghost tours that Miles went on, um, and in, here in here in Savannah too. Um, yeah, she actually began in Savannah, as I yeah. recall. Yeah, her book's well well known here in <laughs> the Hostess City. It's a great book. Yes, yes, it's it's I, it's over there. Yeah, oh, yeah. She's, <laughs> and she's wonderful. But the ghost stories that are given on most ghost tours, especially if they sort of present themselves as ghost hunters. They're different than the older ghost stories. So a lot of the older ghost stories that, that you may find on ghost tours, especially in, in Williamsburg, come from stories that were collected in the 30s and 40s as a part of the New Deal, the WPA, right? So they're, they are reflecting a vision of the past that existed in the 30s and 40s, very white. A lot of the con more contemporary stories that you see on ghost tours, especially ones that say like, we're going to hunt or something like that, or give you devices. The way that those stories are created is that it starts from the paranormal community. So someone will come out who is a medium or um, has all the devices and they will do a reading of, of a place. And they'll be like, yes, this place has ghosts because the, the sensors say so, or I'm, I'm getting a feeling that there is a spirit here. The ghost stories that come out of that then sort of take that. They're like, okay, so there's a ghost in this building. Yes, there's there's a ghost in this basement. Yes. And then they'll go do the research and they're like, what was in this house? What was in this basement? And in many of those cases, that's where you get those stories of like, oh, it's an enslaved person because the paranormal community has read it as haunted. And then when you add the history to it, they're like, okay, so who would, who would linger here? Who's having a bad time in this basement area? And in many of the cases, it is an enslaved person. They, they say like, oh, there were enslaved people here. Slavery is awful. And then they're, they're sort of using that, that, that paranormal rationality that sort of leads to, okay, so lingering spirit felt kind of mad, must be an enslaved person because that's horrible, right? So it's, it's, a, it's a horrible thing. So all of this sort of then explains itself. And I think that a lot of the ghost stories that are on ghost tours are that. It is, it starts from the paranormal community and they're adding history to it. And I think that in, in some way there is a genuine effort to talk about, they're like, oh, we are, we are talking about the enslaved and we are in contemporary culture. It says we should talk about the enslaved. So we're doing it, but they're not doing it well. I think that <laughs> Miles was right on the money with that. It's more harm than good, but it is sort of coming from this very distinct late 20th, early 21st century cultural moment where people want to. They're like, yeah, we, we need to talk about the things that are disturbing and the, the bad times. So it's it's out of that, that impulse, that desire to share something real and sort of human and authentic, but they're doing it in, in a way that is more harmful than a more nuanced daytime interpretation would present. It's a good impulse, but may have bad effects nonetheless. Yes. Yeah. The, the way I kind of feel about it is like, I see you and I see what you're doing, but maybe not that way. It makes me think of a lot of folks I know who are into various neo-pagan and new age religions will go to uh, local Native American sites and leave offerings. And it's like, well, every time I talk to anybody who's from one of the groups who the site's important to, they ask that you not do that. I understand yeah. you feel like you're doing something positive here, but please knock it off. Yeah. 
Yes, exactly. Yeah. And and there's, of course, there there's also an element of sort of marketability too. Mm-hmm. like people, people also be like, well, we don't talk about any black people on, on, on the tour. What do we do? Uh, ghosts? Sure. So there, that impulse, of course, exists. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I always tend to try to be like, okay, though, maybe let's look at the positive. Like, what are you trying to do? You're clearly mm-hmm. not doing the right thing. But what's the effort here? It's interesting to contrast that with the stories that uh Godwin was trying to push and that you've encountered at other historic sites where we're going to talk about slavery. We're going to talk about these negative things. And these are scary stories as opposed to we're going to talk about these, you know, people from the past that we really look up to. And these stories aren't spooky or scary at all. In fact, we want these ghosts to come by. Yeah. It creates an interesting contrast. It illustrates a lot about how, at least in the Western world, folks are relating to the past. Mm -hmm. We're at this moment in our study of history, where we're looking at the past with a much more critical lens, where we're saying like, okay, let's let's ask some questions. What's actually going on there? Let's look at some things that aren't great. And I think because of that, we, we've sort of been trained or been sort of culturally shifting in the, uh, the past 30 years to read gritty, to read human sorrow as more authentic, as something that's real after generations of being delivered a a history with so many glaring gaps of just like, and here's a guy, it's it's George Washington, he's super tall, he is, uh, he's got white hair and he is just not gonna socks off everybody, right? Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, he was tall. Yeah, you got that. He admits to cutting down the cherry tree because he's that honest. Yeah, yeah. oh, he's so honest, he's so pure, he's so good, right? So when we get to this point in the mid 20th century into the latter where people are coming to terms with the fact that like okay so that's a myth Mm -hmm. that's a mythic history and there's a more accurate history and you don't want to time travel anymore like oh god no like it's horrible back then people were treated very badly uh and i think that there's this moment where people are sort of coming to terms with that of, of having this sort of myth partially shattered or or, or accepting it now as, as a myth and knowing that the actual past is much more gritty. Having that experience mid-late 20th century has then made stuff that seems pleasant seem like a lie. So we become very accustomed to seeing a grittiness as authentic, right? So we get to these scarier ghost stories. They are sort of presented as more authentic because the past did suck and people did suffer. Mm-hmm. So therefore, because there is suffering, there is truth, which is a really sort of like dark 20th or 21st century idea that if it's sort of the, the grittier it is, the, the more painful it is, the more authentic it becomes because We've sort of swung so far on that pendulum from like, everything's bright and rosy. Don't you want to go back to the 18th century to where we are in the 21st century? That's like, no, that was a horrible time. So uh, I think that a lot of the contemporary ghost stories, there's an element of sort of that that paranormal backwards engineering and just this desire for something real and that realness being a grittiness. Which is a shift you also see a lot in popular literature, for example, you know, and hell, I had it pointed out to me recently that good luck getting a film nominated for best picture if it's not some dark, gritty, horrible thing. Comedies and musicals aren't going to get it anymore because we have this idea that, you know, suffering is somehow, mm-hmm. and that's a broader cultural thing. Yeah, we're, we're all kind of very gothic in the sort of literary, not architectural sense. Like we're, we are sort of a, a gothic people. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, that's an interesting uh, take on it. I hadn't actually considered that that was part of it. it that actually ties into something that uh, I know I was in the questions I'd sent you, which was, you note the WPA program that gathered a lot of the ghost stories in uh, um, Virginia. And you said that a lot of what was gathered was not spooky or scary. There's a couple of exceptions, like the you mentioned one about a murderer who's constantly washing blood off his hands. But you said that by and large, they weren't. And I had asked did you think that this was because there might've been kind of parallel folklore, but it sounds like it may be due to a cultural shift that happened in the yeah. recent decades. Yeah. There's like stories about murder, mm-hmm. but they're all in the past, right? There's, there's nothing about those stories that are a threat to the storyteller or the story listener. There's a blood stain on the floor, but like there's no spirit that's coming to get you. So we're, we do see a shift in sort of the, the understanding of what ghosts do that, in the early 20th century, if you look at folklore from the United States, there's a clear line between ghosts and demons. And contemporarily, we have just blended that completely. So contemporary ghost stories, uh, and I mean in like movies too, and in stories, stuff like that, ghosts will get you. In the early 20th century, ghosts aren't getting you. Demons will get you. Other kinds of creatures, right? They'll get you. But the ghost doesn't. So that makes the ghosts a lot less scarier. They might be opening and closing a cabinet, which is annoying, but not threatening. At the very most, they're ghosts that will will trip specifically women Mm -hmm. up and down a flight of stairs, but no one's dying. No one's like knocking their chins and losing teeth. It's just like, ah, this guy again. Some people will get uh, like the, the cold hand of the former owner brushed across their face, which is creepy and uncomfortable, but you're fine. So when I sort of evaluate uh, these stories for their scariness, it's a very 21st century interpretation of what scary is. And there's, there's no tension in these older ghost stories. There's no threat. There's no mystery of when it's going to happen. Like in, in the White House in Colonial Williamsburg, it's like June 6th. June 6th, the ghost comes back to the specific room. And if anyone's in there at midnight, he's going to touch their face. That's not scary. That's actually very well planned. So when, when the owners of the home tell the story, one of the things that they're doing is they're illustrating their expertise in this relationship. That they're like, oh, don't stay in that room June 6th because that's when old George comes back and touches faces. Like they, they are so casual. They are so used to and accustomed to this dead relative doing his cold hand thing. Right? It's, it's not scary at all. It's very well managed. And so we, we don't see a lot of scary stuff. There is scary stuff in the stories about demons or mythical creatures who will come. And there's like a creepy pig animal whose name I can't ever remember. Those things aren't ghosts. That's a completely different thing. It's not until later on that we sort of blend ghost and demon together again in really in the way it was in sort of earlier early modern times. Right. So for example, this just made me think of the Amityville story Mm -hmm. where it's very vague. Is this a ghost? Is it a demon? We don't know, but it's out to get you. Yeah. The uh, book and the film are both very vague as to what it actually is. Whereas, you know, you think about uh, a lot of the ghost stories that come from early 20th century. And as you're saying this, I'm thinking, yeah, I know a lot where you go to this place and you'll see this thing, or you may end up finding that you're part of this uh, experience, but it's not necessarily something that's going to harm you. It may unnerve you. It may upset you, Mm -hmm. but it's not going to do you any real damage. Yeah. And and there's quite a few like that. And there's even like, it's a very sort of like youth 
and teenage ritual kind of ghost story where legend tripping yeah yes yeah yeah, yeah. elizabeth bird an anthropologist wrote about sort of he was in the southwest but teens who would go to this certain railroad track and if you put the car in neutral on a special day then the children the children who had died in a bus accident would like push your car off the tracks that story is in every state Right. Yeah. Yeah, there was there was one where where I grew up in Chicago that was the same thing. It's like, oh, put a, put some snow on your bumper and two hands will appear, stuff like that. But that's that too. Like it's it's creepy, but it's not threatening, right? Mm-hmm. In fact, the ghosts are trying to help you. This tragic death is being avoided again, right? You're being pushed off. It's like creepy because, of course, any ghost story is creepy because it challenges the way we understand life and death. Right. So mm-hmm. there's always that sort of mind break where it's like, oh, I don't like it. But it's, it's not that scary. Right. It's not coming to get you. It's just trying to help. It does make me wonder about the cultural contingency of ghost stories because, yeah, you know, out where I live, we have a very large Spanish speaking population. So, of course, La Llorona is mm-hmm. a very common story out here. And La Llorona is a ghost who's going to kill you. Yes. Yeah. And this is a fairly old story. So I do, it does make me have to think about, all right, so what are the cultural contingencies underlying the ghost belief and, you know, whether or not it can do you harm? Yeah. And I I think with the La Llorona, there's, I would, and I haven't looked too much into the story, but I am familiar with it. But one of the things I would uh, sort of ask of sort of the beginnings of that story is if there is something within cultural tradition that would transform someone who has done such deep wrong into a demon. Mm -hmm. It's been years since I was in Catholic school, but there might (laughs) be something that sort of influences this idea that she's not just a spirit. She's like a demonic spirit that because when she she drowned her, she she went to a party and her children drowned or, or something like that. Is, is it that she has sinned so gravely that she is rejected from heaven and hell and becomes this, what would technically be understood as a demon more so than a ghost? So there's, there's always folklore discussions to be had. Now, you make a comment in actually all of the things I've read that people in Virginia have a special understanding of their ghosts <laughs> and how they relate to history. And it makes me think of a friend of mine who's from the South. He's lived all over the South, but he spent a lot of time in Virginia. And he's often asking me why I'm not including more Southern ghost stories in this podcast. So Jeff, if you're listening, this is for you. Ta-da. But uh, it does make me wonder, is there something about the culture of Virginia or the South generally that actually gives these ghost stories a context that they may lack in other parts of the U.S.? I think story-wise, there's nothing very special about Mm -hmm. Virginia's ghost stories. It's more that the people of Virginia insist upon them being special. There is this real love of having an identity as being historical. So that's what puts that special shine on the Virginia ghost stories is that there is an insistence. And I've seen it in newspapers at the beginning of the 20th century into the 21st century, where Virginians insist that they know more ghost stories, know better ghost stories, and, and more historical ghost stories than anybody else. And of course, there, there are ghost stories in Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. and there are ghost stories in Massachusetts, this, these other older places. There's ghost stories in St. Augustine and Barbados. But the Virginians insist that theirs are better, more historical, and more of them. Most of the stories are very typical. They are a Civil War guy, a Revolutionary War guy. 
sad white lady. That's usually the title. It's like the white lady. And they don't mean skin. They mean like she's dressed in white because she was left by uh, a suitor or she wasn't allowed to be with the man she loved. So like she exists in Virginia and all of the other states, a story you can very easily find. I can think of three white lady stories that are almost all identical, but in completely different locations within a two hour drive of where I'm sitting right now. Yeah. It is, it's a genre of itself. Yeah. And Virginia has all of those. They, uh, they of course have Native American stories. They have worker stories, right? So they, they have mine ghosts. They have mill ghosts, people so dedicated to their craft that they keep working. There's a few 17th and 16th century explorer ghosts near the coast. There's nothing very special about the ghost stories. They're pretty common. It's more about the storyteller who insists upon Virginia having the most, the best, and the most historical. So it's essentially a ghost story as an aspect of identity, or I should say ghost stories generally as an aspect of identity, as opposed to the stories themselves being particularly different or important. Yes. Yeah. It's, it is having a human piece of the past. We know that there's material objects, right? You're, you're mm-hmm. an archaeologist. The material objects of the past exist. Some are in the ground, some are in museums, some are in people's private collections. But what is perhaps more sought after, harder to get, is something that's human. Oftentimes when folks will sort of interpret the value of a material object, they will, outside of archaeology, where you're like, this is creamware, and this tells us mm-hmm. time, right? They'll say, well, this is my, my grandma's ring, and when I have it, I feel closer to her. So there's, there's a bit of that... Um, Victorian memento mori, or even sort of a saint-like relic in it, that they're saying this object has this person. And I can, I as a human being, human emotional living, can connect on a human emotional living level with this past human. And so we see that in like small haunted objects. And in Virginia, there is this sense that the state itself, like a sponge, holds on to people from the past. And not just their stuff, and not just their houses, but they themselves, making them as humans accessible to living humans. And so that's, that's what they would argue makes it special, is that it's, it's there. The people are still there and can be accessed, are, are accessible as humans, not just stuff. So it's a bit like uh, my grandfather was a soldier in uh, World War II, and from time to time he would be willing to talk about it. So it's, a, it's in a way like me talking to my grandfather about this big historical event, except everybody acknowledges these people are dead, but somehow you're still communing with them. And that's an aspect of your identity as a Virginian. Mm -hmm. Okay. They had the access, special access. Gotcha. I had two other things I wanted to ask you about. Of course. The first is that you mentioned people, the first person interpreters as being ghostly. Mm -hmm. And I think in the paper you published in the public historian, you really laid this out well. The idea that ghosts and a belief in ghosts allowed you to sort of people Williamsburg when you visited. But then as that was downplayed, there was a need for something else. So a film was made and the film essentially filled in for the ghosts that were no longer allowed to talk about. Mm -hmm. And then the people filled in for the ghosts once the film was no longer sufficient to do that job. In your experience, do the people working there do they, do they tend to see themselves in that way? Or is it uh, something where they would find this idea that they're essentially standing for ghosts very alien? The, the people 
people that I've talked to, and many of them are, are former interpreters, mm-hmm. they have agreed with my assessment of it, but haven't said that that's what they have thought of themselves as. Okay. But that's just in Colonia Williamsburg. There is a scholar named Pravina Shuka. She has a book called Costume, Performing Identities Through Dress. And in it, she interviews a lot of costume interpreters and also people that have like sort of cultural dress, like like for carnival. But one of the groups that she talks to is Civil War reenactors. And one of the things she talks about within that community, more of they're less professional. So the, the, the folks who work at Colonial Williamsburg are professional interpreters. Many of them have acting backgrounds. So they are sort of for them, it's it's theater. But the Civil War reenactors, this is dedicated hobbyists. I've known a few uh, of them. Yeah. One of the things that she found in her research with them was this desire to just like the recreated houses perform the past so well that the past comes back. Mm-hmm. And they'll talk about having this moment where they're all charging in that they kind of get this liminal space where they actually feel like they're in the past or they'll like meet a guy and then they'll later reveal that he was a ghost. They, they thought it was just a contemporary buddy, but it was a guy from the past who came back because their recreation of the battle was so authentic. So she, she talks a bit about that, but what that kind of brought me to was, do you know about Casper? The fictional Casper, the friendly ghost? The archaeology Casper stands for the Center uh, for the Archaeological Studies of Presence Through Ethnographic Resonance. It's ran by this guy named John Sable. In looking at sort of how first-person interpreters and reenactors view themselves in relation to ghosts, I stumbled upon this archaeologist. And he has this center, which stands for Casper. And I've read through his stuff. And the way I understand his method is that he performs the past in order to ethnographically study the past. And the way in which it is described sounds very, very similar to what the Civil War reenactors say, where they're like, we did it so well, the ghost came back. And I think that's what John Sable is doing as well in sort of this very new archaeological method. Very extreme experimental archaeology. Yeah, yeah, like very, like, really into it right it's 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 not just using the tools it's using the tools inside like getting in the mind space and wearing the outfit mm-hmm. and doing it on the spot where it happened you're doing first person interpretation and hoping that the ghosts come back my thinking is that this was a way to make money off of his association with the show paranormal state that's my guess yeah i would i would guess that too and i've i've seen a lot of weird i've like dug into paranormal theory and all that yeah and I'm like, oh, okay like I, and then this i was like so it's it's ghosts or no? Like it's 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 very. He, he doesn't want to uh, commit. No, yeah, that's yeah. the weirdest thing. It's like you're calling yourself Casper. Like right. you just say ghosts is okay. And 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 the other thing, like experimental archaeology already exists. Yeah. Just do yourself and everyone else a favor. Say so you're trying to bring back ghosts. They'll clear everything up. <laughs> uh, what's funny is that there's actually some ideas in here that I think are valid for actual archaeologists. Like he talks about how. Well, if you dress in the clothing, then you'll have a better idea of how that would have felt and how you would have moved in the landscapes. Yeah, yeah that's totally valid. I, I do talk about that in the book. There is this sort of very privileged experience that the historical crafts people have, because who else knows how to make a barrel in that shirt? Yeah, like that, that is an experience that no one has had for a hundred years. And that's really unique. And that's the weird thing about Casper. Like there's stuff in there. It's like, okay, just do it better. The other question I had for you, 
throughout the material that I've read that you've written, you use certain terms and certain lines of discussion in a way. I do cultural resource management for a living. So <laughs> I'm very familiar with the criteria for the National Register of Historic Places. And you consistently use the term significant and then used discussions of ties to people and events in a way that's completely consistent with making an argument for historic uh, for inclusion in the National Register. Mm -hmm. Was that intentional or did it just kind of happen that way? I think it just happened because I, I looked it up. I, I had to get mm -hmm. a refresher. I think it's just the, in terms of the way historical sites talk about significance, I think that that has, there's probably some influence in that, but that, that seems to be the language that people use to talk about historical sites, even mm -hmm. if it's outside of the official act. So yeah, that was, that was coincidental. I think that in the case of the 1930s and 1940s reports, mm -hmm. There, there might be an element of that in there because one of the, well, what is, what's the year on the. The uh, National Historic Preservation Act, if I recall correctly, is either 1968 or 1969. Okay, and so this is earlier. I was it was influenced by a lot of the work that was done for the WPA, though. That's that's probably it then, because the, when the folks went out to do their research, so this is New Deal era, second New Deal. So mm -hmm. so they're now they're hiring middle class people who are, who are out of jobs, writers, researchers, and they said, go forth, go find American stories, right? Find something that'll bring this huge nation together culturally. So they go out and they have reports they have to fill in when they come back. And it's like the date of the house, when it was built, special material, and then there's historical significance. So that's sort of built into this New Deal project that definitely then influenced the, the, the creation of the National Register because they already had all the paper. They've mm -hmm. done so much work, like between the WPA, the Folklore Project, HABs, they're like, well, we... Would, it would be silly not to use all of these sources. In fact, the haves and hair process is still used as the standard way to document historic structures. Yeah. yeah. There you go. CRM people, use ghosts, go for it, see what happens. Yeah, I, I have a feeling that uh, most uh, offices of historic preservation would shoot it down, which yeah, really they probably shouldn't because it does, it does have a uh, very strong tie to how people perceive yeah. you know, historic places. Mm -hmm. and, in, and in many cases, the... The stories do lead to something that is historical. They're just being expressed in this ghostly way because mm -hmm. the ghosts, again, create that situation where it's human to human, right? It's it's intimate. Though I think things can start with ghost stories as really many historical sites, if we look early on, do start with this sort of rhetoric and language around ghost stories. You just take it to the next step. You just see what the story's about because usually there is something there, there. Yeah. E even if it's not exactly what the story tells you, there's usually something that causes people to think about this place as being significant or special that uh, yeah. will stand out. And I've got all sorts of examples now cramming my head. But yeah, <laughs> most of the time, the specifics of the story are wrong, but they'll point you towards something that's important about the area. Yes. So. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's that's one thing that makes ghost stories really usable uh, and a really useful tool is that as a historian looking at them, there's always something there. It, it might be gone through that telephone process where it's a little changed by the time you see it, but someone thought it was significant. There's something, mm -hmm. someone evaluated the value and said it's significant historically. And they may have made up a story, but there's there's still that something there where a human being said special space. And I think that that's, that is it, that's significant, right? That's significant that the human being said, this is important to me. Yeah. Is there anything that we haven't spoken about that you wanted to make sure we got to? I wrote down two examples that I didn't get to share. Okay. 
on sort of ghost stories being used for political means. Mm-hmm. In Julie King's book, Archaeology, Narrative, and the Politics of the Past, A View from Southern Maryland. One of the stories that she shares in her book is about Lookout Point in in Maryland and how officially the site is curated to talk about African-American men's experience in the Civil War. But the ghost hunters that come to the site use sort of paranormal theories and ghost story telling to reinterpret the site as being a site with white Civil War soldiers. So we see this sort of push and pull between sort of the official narrative that's seeking to recognize African-American contributions and experiences during the Civil War in Maryland and the ghost hunters, again, going back to this older, sort of very white-centric vision of the past. And then the other, oh, about that performing as ghost. So while I haven't heard interpreters saying that their performance is ghostly, but they agree with my evaluation that it seems ghostly and they're like, yeah. What I have seen is a lot of interpreters talking about guests getting really invested in their performances as if they were talking to actual people from the past. One example that I read in an article was about back when the Tea Party was was really big, the political group, mm-hmm. early 2000s, uh, a lot of members of the Tea Party would go to Colonial Williamsburg and like have genuine conversations with the guys who were interpreting the constitutional framers. Like they would like hunt down Thomas Jefferson and be like, we need to talk about the Constitution. Like they would really genuinely interact as if Bill Barker could speak for Thomas Jefferson, right? And a similar thing happened with the interpreter Cheyenne McKnight. Uh, And she's like an independent first person interpreter uh, who does African-American history, both enslavement and like up to the 20th century. Uh, And she said that she would often get, she'd say like older white people would come up to her and apologize for slavery. As if she was, and she was like, no, like I'm, I'm a 21st century woman, like, and sort of this experience that audience members or guests will have with first person interpreters where they just fully invest in the performance and sort of in that way, transform the interpreters into more of a more ghostly performance where they are sort of embodying the person of the past so much so that they can be sort of grilled with political questions or sort of have the ability to forgive white Americans for slavery. Huh. I found those two very interesting. And I wasn't able to sort of dig into those for my book so much, but I like those kinds of interactions always fascinate me. Of the, yeah. Because there's there's so much like awkwardness with first person interpreters if you're not invested, right? So Colonial Williamsburg puts out videos of like how to interact with these people because it's, it's a little weird, right? Someone's like eagle tiny and you're like, what? Right. So you have to invest to a certain extent to get the experience. But then there's that next level where people all the way invest, where they are now using the performers as ghosts of the past, as these like true embodiments. That's really fascinating. And I, I feel like that is more, more the job of the sociologist or, or the anthropologist. But when it happens, I want them to send me the stuff. It does make me think about you know, story my uncle told me they live near Fort Ross, which is a Russian fort in Northern California. And he had told me that uh, he was up there once and saw some guy trying to argue Russian politics with a first person interpreter. <laughs> and finally, the interpreter had to break character and say, buddy, I'm not really Russian. Yeah. And even if I was, I'm representing a guy from Imperial Russia, not the USSR. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know? And that's, that's such a common experience with, with first-person interpreters, but they'll have to say like, oh, well, 
I don't know anything about that yet, but I would suspect in 20 years I might like trying to like bring them back of like, no, I'm I'm young John Adams. I don't know about right. that yet. But yeah, there's there's always a, a kind of uncanniness with first person interpreters because they look like the person of the past. They're talking like the person of the past. They're dressed like the person of the past. And yet they are just a 21st century person. They can end up in a way as being like a human Ouija board. Yeah. Ooh, yes. Yeah. Huh. Well, I think that may be a good place to leave it for now, but I know you've got a book coming out at the end of the year. I've actually pre-ordered it, so I'm looking forward to reading that. The book will focus on Williamsburg, is that correct? Yeah, so the the book's called The Spirit of Colonial Williamsburg Ghosts and Interpreting the Recreated Past. And it talks about sort of how ghost stories and really even the, the informal just talk of ghosts influenced the creation of Colonial Williamsburg and its interpretation, even on sort of on the sly. So in the first part, we have that sort of traditional ghost stories coming from the homeowners. Godwin then uses those ghost stories to argue for why the city should be restored. As his time fades, uh, we enter this sort of professional period of interpretation at Colonial Williamsburg, and they say no ghosts. And they really struggle. They really struggle to reach people because, again, the restoration is a very nerdy project. So if, if you don't understand the significance of it, if you don't have an appreciation for wallpaper or 18th century table legs, then Colonial Williamsburg is like lame, right? Mm-hmm. So there's this like this period from like the 30s to the 70s where Colonial Williamsburg is eh, I'm really unsure of how they're presenting themselves to the broader public. Uh, and I argue that a big part of that is that they abandoned ghosts and that ghosts are human, right? This this talk of ghosts is this talk of humanity, that it, it peoples space. So we go through this period where the, the interpretation is very sort of struggling to find its significance, its way to d- deliver itself. And then we get into the 1970s where we see first person in interpretation, which I do see is a, a sort of expression of ghostliness. They're saying, I am an 18th century person. I'm this specific 18th century person. Treat me thusly with normal 21st century respect, but treat me and ask me questions as if I am Thomas Jefferson. And so it's, it's this very ghostly thing because you are putting people from the past back in the modern day, which is what ghost stories had always done, which is what this talk of ghosts did, is it, it placed humans of the past in the contemporary time. So I I talk about that. And then the last few chapters about contemporary ghost tours in Williamsburg and the advent of their Halloween spectaculars, which is a whole thing. Well, I look forward to being able to read it. And it comes out in September, if I recall correctly. September, yes. Yeah. If, if you go to the, the University of Massachusetts Press website, there will be a cover there soon, I swear. But <laughs> September is the time. So it should be on shelves for Halloween because it, it is it's not a very Halloweeny book, but it is about ghosts. So it's- well, certainly for people like myself who are more interested in what these stories mean culturally than in whether or not they're true. Yeah, it sounds like it's right up my alley. So I want to thank you for being on. If people were interested in contacting you, how would they go about doing that? You can email me at A-P-I-R-O-K at georgiasouthern.edu. And we'll also have that in the show notes. Thanks for being on. Well, again, I really appreciate you being generous with your time and keep in touch. I will be happy to have you back on when your book's out. Perfect. I will do that.
If you have a weird tale, have had a strange experience of your own, or know of a bit of local lore that should get a wider audience, please feel free to contact me at ghostthropology at gmail.com. That's G-H-O-S-T-H-R-O-P-O-L-O-G-Y at gmail. You can find more at kmmamedia.com. Click on the Ghostthropology link and you can find episodes, transcripts, sources, and a link to support us through Patreon. Spooky!